This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A pediatrician who is the founder of McMaster Children's Hospital and a professor emeritus of McMaster University with a legacy of improving healthcare over the past half century has received the Order of Canada. Last June, Dr. Peter Dent was announced as a member of Canada's highest civilian honor by then Governor General David Johnston. Yesterday, in our nation's capital, Dr. Dent received the Order of Canada, and he joins us now. Dr. Dent, good afternoon. How are you? I'm just fine. Just fine. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Can you share some details of yesterday's ceremony? Well, uh, it was uh, an interesting mixture of pomp and circumstance and just uh, old down-home hospitality with uh, the Governor General, uh, Julie Payette, and uh, about 50 other uh, Order of Canada recipients and their families, the uh, honor guards. The uh, It was just a, a great all-around day. When uh, Governor General Payette uh, gave you the Order of Canada medal, pinned it on, on your suit, what were some of the thoughts going through your mind? Through my mind? I, I think my mind was a kind of a blank. We were all <laughs> pretty well programmed and told when to turn left, when to turn right, when to move here and there and everywhere. And uh, the thoughts that uh, related to this award had all been... Uh, circulating through my mind um, when I heard that I received it uh, last June. And I'm thinking I'm very honored uh, to have received it, very fortunate that there were uh, people who uh, felt that I deserved it and uh, put my name forward. Uh, And uh, really, there are a lot of people who are working with me as colleagues, at McMaster University, at uh, McMaster Children's Hospital, and over the years in various capacities that I've functioned that uh, have done equally uh, good work and deserve it as much as they. So uh, to those people, um, I, I want to thank and, and just let the world know that just because you're the one who goes up to shake the Gigi's hand, there are plenty of others who... Uh, are equally deserving. Well said. You mentioned that there were several other um, Order of Canada recipients in the room uh, for the ceremony yesterday in Ottawa as well. Was there anybody that you were looking forward to meeting or, or learning more about their story, or was just a uh, an, an awe kind of moment? I think it was pretty much an awe kind of moment. Uh, I uh, You don't know until you get there who's going to be uh, in the crowd with you, unless you choose to look back. Uh, and to the original announcement, and we just, uh, my family and I, we just said, we're here together, we're going to celebrate if we meet some interesting people, which we certainly did. Uh, there were all kinds of people from uh, um, rock stars to, um, to uh, uh, leaders of the business world to uh, social advocates to hockey players, uh, well, one hockey player, Mark Messier, <laughs> uh, authors, uh, Margaret McMillan. Um, it, it, uh, everybody told me, uh, who I talked to before, said, you will have a wonderful time. It's very exciting. And for most of us recipients, it's once in a lifetime. There are a few people who come more than once because uh, 
there there are different orders of uh, importance right. of the Order of Canada. But uh, um, for me, I'm sure it's once in a lifetime, um, and uh, it was worth every minute. We're chatting with uh, Dr. Peter Dent, uh, founding father of McMaster Children's Hospital here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. My name's Rick Samprin, in for Scott today. I want to discuss the formation of McMaster Children's Hospital. Looking at it now, did you envision what it has become? Um, well, let me say that what it has become was what I thought it should be. Okay. Um, there were plenty of times along the way when I wasn't sure that uh, we would get to where we are now um, for a variety of reasons, but uh, it's encouraging to think that we were on the right track. It was the right thing to do at the time, which was uh, uh, back in in the late 80s that we actually uh, celebrated the the Children's Hospital's um, recognition as a children's hospital. Um, but it, it was uh, was the right thing to do, uh, no question. You joined McMaster's Medical School in 1967, long time ago. I don't want to make you feel old, but uh, you were a research scientist in immunology. Can you recall your, your first day or your first class or your first week on campus and what it was like? Oh, my goodness. Um, I know I'm testing the memory bank. <laughs> yeah, the first day... I was probably out looking for a place to uh, house my family because uh, we were moving from Minneapolis um, back to Canada. I'd been in Minneapolis for four years uh, in studying and uh, being on, on the faculty at the University of Minnesota. Um, but I can't remember like a moment in time. It wasn't like where was I when when JFK was killed right it was it was a it was just an overwhelming thing we were uh the department of pediatrics which i joined was housed at saint joseph's hospital my laboratory was in what was called the uh preliminary lab building uh supposed to be temporary it's still there uh on the uh, west side of uh, mcmaster university medical center uh so we were setting up the laboratory we were uh, hiring a staff for the department, uh, it was was just, and and it was, it, it wasn't uh, as frenetic as, as things seem to be now. Maybe because I, as I get older, I move a little more slowly. But <laughs> in those days, we actually had time for lunch. Right, and now they're eating in the lab. Is that what you're what you're suggesting? Well, sadly, <laughs> uh, a lot of people are eating on the go. Wow! Yeah, right. there isn't uh, there isn't time to, to to pause and smell the roses. Doesn't mean you don't work as hard when you're working, but sometimes a little contemplation is a good thing. Right, uh, Doctor Dent, you were also instrumental in creating Canada's first multidisciplinary program in immunology and virology. Why was that so important to you? Well, uh, I'll tell you just a quick word. It was uh, it's it's called a list server, and nowadays uh, there are a lot of list servers out there, which are it's just a means of communication among people with similar interests. And at that time, the it was called the World Wide Web uh, or Internet was emerging, which was in the in the eighties, and. Uh, 
I didn't create it. What I did was I learned what it was, and I said, oh, we could use that in my specialty. And it was actually with rheumatology. I have two specialties, rheumatology and immunology. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it was, it was a, a, a tool, the early electronic age, and we happened to be uh, early adopters, uh, mainly because I recognized that it would be useful, and I got one of the very talented people in our, you know, our information systems department to uh, help me set it up, and it, it's now on autopilot. Wow. Yeah. One one last question for you. We only have about uh, ninety seconds or so. Over the past few years, especially Hamilton has really become known as a growing healthcare community. People from all over the world are coming here to either to learn uh, for treatment, uh, to, to work in the healthcare industry. Do you think that Hamilton or Hamilton residents truly know what goes on in this city, healthcare related, on a on a day to day basis? Um, I don't think we know everything, but I, I think the uh, the the university and the hospitals have been pretty good at uh, getting out there and telling people what's going on. Um, unless you you're, have a particular need to know, you go about your daily business. But uh, if you get ill or you have a friend or family that gets ill uh, or needs the latest treatment, um, then you learn about it and you know that uh, McMaster really is uh, at the cutting edge. Dr. Dentz, uh, once again, thank you for joining us today. More importantly, congratulations on your Order of Canada. Well-deserved. Enjoy the rest of the day and the weekend, too. Thank you, and uh, all the best to you, too. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Critics of Ontario's new law promising to cap prices on scalped sports and concert tickets say it's going to fail. Why? Well, one of the main reasons is because the province isn't adding any new staff to enforce this new Ticket Sales Act. The topic came up at Canadian Music Week in Toronto this week, and our guest was there and played a pretty integral part in leading this discussion, or at least moving it forward. His name is Alan Cross, music journalist and internationally known broadcaster, and joins us now. Alan, how are you? Well, I, I have to leave town. I'm in London, England, right now because <laughs> there's been quite a bit, of, quite a bit of uh, uh, blowback from this, or at least a lot of attention to it, and 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 rightly so. This this is this is a dumb piece of legislation. So let's get into it. What what, what do you not like? I would like there very much to be a cap on the price of a liter of gas. I would like there very much to be a cap on 100 grams of beef because I like my steak on the barbecue on Sunday afternoons. I would like there to be a cap on a lot of things that I find very expensive and that I think I feel are too expensive. Yet we're not going to see any of those things. However, the Wynn government, in their wisdom, has decided after much public consultation that concert tickets are special, that sporting event tickets are special, Special, that theater production tickets are special and should be subject to the market distorting um, the market distorting measure of putting a price cap on how much you can sell one on the secondary market. That's just dumb. Okay, so give us an example. We have tickets to um, a Blue Jays game. So how how would right. this legislation work in that regard? The, the, the tickets to this uh, to these seats are fifty dollars. 
Right. Now, the tickets are, the face value of those tickets are $50. The um, proposed, well, the legislation, which will come into effect on July the 1st, says that you will not be able to charge more than 50% above that face value. Now, fine. What, what to what purpose? It's a feel-good thing. So, oh, great. The government is stepping in and making sure that people don't get gouged on tickets. Well, that's a flawed premise, and, and I'll explain why. If you, right now, Ticket for sporting events, theater productions, concerts uh, are probably artificially low at some points because of demand. Concert tickets, all these things are perishable commodities that are uh, subject to the laws of supply and demand in the marketplace. If there is great demand on a commodity, the price goes up. We see that with uh, the, uh, the liter of gas. Mm-hmm. And if the demand is low, well, the price tends to drop. And we do have a number of companies such as StubHub and TM Plus and a few other legitimate brokers who are willing to buy up tickets from anywhere and use them as um, and and, and resell them legally uh, based on market value, based on market price. And what we end up with in the 24 to 48 hours before an event is the actual value in the marketplace of that ticket. Putting a price cap on it is not going to help because it doesn't increase the supply. It only makes it easier for people who already buy tickets on the secondary market. It makes it cheaper for them. And basically, it does. It, it's going to drive the free market exchange of these tickets deeper and deeper underground where there are zero consumer protections. And you might end up with a lot of scams, you might end up with a lot of fraud, and you might even end up with some criminal activity. It's just a dumb populist idea that the Wooden government passed to make sure that everybody's feels good that, oh, good, we're not being gouged. Is there any information in this act that uh, tells us uh, or or instructs uh, businesses like StubHub and the like that they can only buy a certain amount of tickets? So if there's, you know, a thousand tickets to said concert, uh, StubHub, you're only allowed to buy, uh, you know, X amount. No. uh, As a matter of fact, I had lunch yesterday with the president of StubHub North America, and I had a very long talk with the president of Ticketmaster. They're both in town to address people at Canadian Music Week because they don't know what the legislation actually means for them. How is it going to be enforced? Are there going to be fines? Is it going to be a self-enforcement situation for the for the industry? Uh, there is no clarity in, in the act as it's written. So they are very confused about going forward. They're not sure what they're, they're able to do. Now, I want to back up and say that there are a couple of good things about this act. There are a couple of things that uh, needed to be done. I don't know exactly how uh, effective they will be, but number one, the Ontario government wants the, to allow or to outlaw the buying of concert tickets by by robots, by bots, uh, which is a great idea because there it's, it's just not fair to the general public to have the ticket buying curve distorted by somebody who can buy a thousand tickets a second. That's just wrong because those tickets end up on the secondary market and they do uh, end up uh, gouging people. That's that whole. That's an unfair advantage, and, and that should be wiped out. Number two, the secondary markets, uh, secondary sellers have to show exactly what currency you're buying in, which is good. 
but we still have companies who are, let's say, based out of Boston or some other American place. They don't tell you that you're buy, buying your ticket on their secondary uh, selection in American dollars, which creates a problem. But if you're uh, based in Ontario, you have to align the currency. Um, so those are two things that, that I, I like about it. But uh, everything else is just a, is a disaster. When I was talking to the people at the Attorney General's office about this, and I asked, how are you going to enforce this? He says, well, the first thing that we've been told is that we cannot increase the size of government in any way. So we are not going to create a special task force, a special office, a special anything to police the price of, of tickets. Oh, uh, okay, so how are you going to do it? So, well, well, we'll figure that out. Well, here we are <laughs> about a month and a half before... The legislation goes into effect, and it's as clear as mud. Well, you've clarified some bits, and uh, we're, we're glad to have you on, Alan. And I'm, I'm sure that, uh, you know, if there is even a change in government, I'm not sure the new legislators will be able to, to fix this. There is, there's got to be a scenario out there in which there is a right answer that everyone can follow and everyone will be happy. Uh, I'm not sure we're any closer to it uh, there now. But we'll have to end the discussion there. Appreciate the time, and uh, enjoy the weekend. You bet. You too. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Ottawa is stepping in to uh, help flood-weary residents uh, clean up as uh, floodwaters continue their long-awaited retreat in New Brunswick. That, that's some good news there. Finally, uh, Premier Brian Gallant announcing yesterday that the province has asked the armed forces to conduct a reconnaissance mission to determine if the military could provide assistance in the cleanup. The federal government uh, agreeing and has assigned a reconnaissance team to determine uh, what help members can provide. In the meantime, two emaciated moose left stranded by floodwaters have been euthanized. Animal welfare workers say it's the most visible symbol of a wider problem for New Brunswick wildlife pushed away from their food sources. This flooding has had uh, a, a myriad of impacts, obviously, on the province. Uh, let's bring in Andrew Holland. He's from Nature Conservancy Canada and joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Andrew, good afternoon. How are you? Great. How are you? Not too bad at all. Uh, obviously, this flooding is at an impact on uh, residents of New Brunswick, uh, be it in, uh, in in Fredericton especially and other communities uh, around Maybe some some firsthand thoughts on uh, what you've seen, what you've heard, and, and how the province is recuperating. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for the opportunity to, to be on your program. Uh, certainly, there's been a lot of uh, damage to homes, businesses, farms, uh, recreational uh, properties from camps and cottages, really from you know north of Frederick and all the way down through St. John. So we're we're basically talking about central and, and southern New Brunswick. Uh, here in the Fredericton area, my mother had a, a badly damaged uh, basement due to flooding two Saturdays ago. It took us nine hours to clean that out. Um, it was just the fact that uh, there was so much snow here over the winter months and uh, really a lot of storms. And with the, I guess, rapid melt of that snow uh, in sort of mid to late April, uh, it really resulted in lakes, rivers, and streams just climbing so high because you, you get a couple of warm days of 23 degrees and that snow melts so quickly that uh, people and businesses and folks along rivers, edges, and, and low-lying areas, they just didn't have a lot of time to prepare. 
I know in the early stages of the floodwaters rising, uh, there were officials saying, uh, listen, you, we, we have to be prepared for uh, epic or, or record level of flooding. Did they anticipate very early on, though, that it would have been this bad? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, they, they have models to predict uh, uh you know, water levels uh, in the St. John River system, certainly in the in the Mactaquac Dam, uh, which is just north of Fredericton, that uh, you see a lot of water that goes through, I guess, and then it flows south. But uh, there was just a lot of snow. There was a lot of snow here this winter. Anybody who would monitor weather or see storms uh, on the Weather Channel or anything at all would, would be alert to the fact that, uh, uh, golly, we had a lot of snow. I mean, my kid, he's in grade 12, and he missed uh, 12 days of school um, just since January due to icy roads and storm and, and snowy conditions. Uh, so uh, really, uh, you know, you know the, the fact is that snow, once it melts, it takes off. Yeah, uh, you know what? No one else in Canada should be complaining because it, it seemed like during the winter, every other week, it was either the, the northeastern United States or, and or the Maritimes just getting pounded by snowstorms. Well, that and, and as far as I'm concerned, uh, and, and from, a, from a conservation perspective, the Nature Conservancy of Canada is really interested in this from a from a conservation perspective because climate change is is, is real <laughs> we're seeing signs of an ever-changing climate of more severe weather events and storms and that is why the protection of you know forests and and you know leaving them alone in some areas so not uh, you know ensuring that uh, you have healthy forests close to rivers edges and protecting wetlands is super important because wetlands help protect communities from flood damage and, and damage to your home and your property, along with municipal roads and, and provincial infrastructure, such as bridges and highways that are now washed out and badly damaged. And, you know, the, you know that's why wetlands act like a sponge. They act like a great big roll of paper towel. They, they help absorb that water. So it helps local homeowners and businesses and, and mitigates the impacts of these storms and climate change. So uh, this is an example where at the end of the day, uh, you know, sometimes strategic land conservation can be a great uh, uh, preventer of, of, of this type of thing or help mitigate or mitigate some of the damage because we're just going to keep on seeing these weather events more and more. The uh, two moose who were emaciated, obviously looking for higher grounds to, to get away or, 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 or escape these floodwaters, obviously had to be euthanized, as I mentioned, off the top. What are their impacts? Uh, are these rising waters? I, I know they're now receding, but what impacts are, is this flood going to have on the natural habitat in and around the area? Well, that's a great question, and that's something that uh, I'm sure natural resources officials and, and fish and wildlife folks will, will monitor because you're looking at the water uh, table. Uh, you're looking at uh, sewage that has uh, got into our waters and things like that, and so how does that impact fish populations? So that is something that will take months to really uh, assess, but you're quite right in terms of these moose that uh, had, you know, they were essentially displaced from their habitat, and they were right along the rivers and, and, and roads edge and, uh, you know, stranded there, and it's uh, quite disturbing. And again, this is a uh, from a Nature Conservancy of Canada perspective, uh, 
know, this is why, you know, the impacts of climate change is something that we, we all have to keep an eye on because these storms happen across the country. And uh, the strategic protection of forests and wetlands and coastal shoreline areas, it's a really important way to help, you know, mitigate the impacts of these storms in Ontario and, and elsewhere in the country. We're chatting with uh, Andrew Holland uh, from the Nature Conservancy of Canada here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Scott. And we're talking about the entire ecosystem here, everything from, you know, mammals to, to fish to, to, to insects being affected by this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and also people. It's not only sure. about the critters and, yeah. and this type of thing. We, You know, I sympathize with, with people who, you know, really have lost a lot. And, and, and really, I mean, in St. John, Quispamps, Hampton, that area of New Brunswick, there's still backyards, residential backyards full of water. So even though here in the Fredericton area where I live, the roads in the city and the downtown have reopened, and the city of Fredericton has done a spectacular job cleaning up the debris in the last 72 hours, like a difference of between day and night after 12 days of just water filled roads um you know so while the water levels have receded in the Fredericton area you know 15 minutes away from here there's still a lot of debris on the road along the side of the road people's yards and people just taking stock they've got homes full of water uh businesses still covered up in water and, uh, you know, recreational. People with camps and cottages, you know, some of them are floating away downstream. It's quite uh, quite powerful, the images, and, uh, you know, it'll take them a number of months to try and recover uh, uh, from this, and, and my thoughts uh, certainly go to those families and everyone impacted. Trans-Canada Highway, from what I understand, has been reopened between Fredericton and Moncton, which is a great sign, especially for those who rely on that highway to, to not only do business, but, you know, live. And, and do whatever they have to do um, have and you just mentioned months but have officials uh, realized or announced how long things will get back to quote unquote normal they haven't I think they're still assessing the situation things are gradually improving and that's a positive thing um, an emergency measures organization has done daily updates with the media sometimes twice a day and they've done a, a fantastic job informing the media and the public of what's going on uh, this is just unprecedented, and in saying that, I mean, this is the worst, worse than 1973, the historic floods of, of 1973. So uh, nobody ever saw it, nobody saw this coming because it's never happened this badly before. It has been uh, rather remarkable, no doubt about it. I'm, I'm glad that uh, things are improving. Uh, there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Andrew, appreciate the time, and uh, best of luck. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And we do a lot of uh, work in Ontario, the Nature Conservancy of Canada. And we'd be delighted to be on your program, uh, you know, in the coming weeks and months when we have uh, local initiatives and, and things across the province to, to maybe talk about. Appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. Have a good weekend. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A uh, huge game tonight in Sault Ste. Marie. It is Game 5 of the Ontario Hockey League's Championship Series between the Hamilton Bulldogs and the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. The best-of-seven series is tied 2-2 entering tonight's game in the Sioux. And joining us now is the President and General Manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs, Steve Steo. Steve, how are you? I'm doing great, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, any nerves at this point heading into Game 5 tonight? 
Uh, always a little bit, for sure. I mean, it's an exciting time of the year, so I don't know if it's nerves or excitement, but uh, certainly proud of this group and um, I look forward to this opportunity that we have here tonight. How do you deal with that nervousness or, or anxiety or whatever you want to call it during the game? Because you're not on the ice. I mean, you used to be and you used to handle all, all that well, but do you find it a little bit different and maybe even a little difficult to handle when you're just watching? It, it, it's really different. It's uh, it's difficult. It's different for me. Um, you know, when I was playing, you obviously have an impact in the game. Um, and, uh, you know, in player development, you're a little bit removed from the group. Uh, when you coach, when I was coaching with the Leafs, you have, you feel like you have some sort of impact. And now uh, managing is, uh, you know, we put the team together. I'm here to support and lead in certain uh, different ways. But as the game's going on, you feel a little bit helpless, no doubt. This series has been um, unbelievably close. I mean, it is 2-2 in the series. Uh, there have been three one-goal games. Two games have gone in overtime. Each team has won that overtime game. Is this what you expected? Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, they're the number one ranked team in Canada, and uh, we knew it was, this is going to be a difficult task. But in saying that and watching the games and watching how our team has come together, I feel very comfortable with uh, with where we're at and uh, and our ability not only to compete in this series but have an opportunity to win. Uh, you know, that's it's certainly with, with the Sioux, there is, they have a quick strike offense. They have some pretty high-end guys that can – uh, put the puck in the net, and uh, that's where we have to be mindful. And in junior hockey, um, you know, you're never really going to get 60 minutes that are consistent, so you have to manage the downtimes. I think our guys have done a very good job of that, and quite frankly, a little bit unlucky. Um, you know, I think in game two up here, uh, we played a terrific game, um, and then, you know, game four at home in front of that incredible crowd. You know, Hamiltonians are just the best when it, when it comes to the big games and come out and support our group, and we just got a little bit unlucky, I think, um, you know, during that game, especially in the overtime. I think we had some great opportunities and at the end of the third. So uh, everything we've hoped, uh, hoped it would be, I think, from a fan's perspective, you couldn't ask for anything more. No doubt about it, especially when you uh, watched Game 3 at First Ontario Centre, 6-5 Bulldogs victory, one of the most exciting, never mind junior hockey games, just hockey games in general that I've seen in a very long time. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's, uh, and this is the, this is the, the event that we were looking for, I think, as we built this team up for Hamiltonians, our, 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 our city deserves it, our fans deserve it, uh, they can come out and be loud and proud in our building and uh, you know what? A, what an entertainment value to come out and be able to watch these kids. These these young men all have big dreams and aspirations, and want to win championships and want to move on and, and play professional hockey at some point. But certainly, it's uh, it's a great thing. We feel like we've we've arrived in Hamilton as an organization. Uh, certainly, a lot of work has been put in to get to this level, and uh, you know, not just from the players on the ice and the coaching staff, but certainly the front office and. Uh, everybody in the community and the things we've done in the community too. So this is a, a proud moment, an exciting moment, and we uh, we want to make sure we finish the job. We're chatting with Steve Steos, Hamilton Bulldogs President and General Manager, and uh, you're listening to the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott. There have been a, a, many remarkable stories uh, connected with the Hamilton Bulldogs, not only this season but over the, the three years in existence. And maybe the most remarkable is... Three years into this thing, you're two wins away from a berth in the Memorial Cup. Are you pinching yourself? Was this the plan? Uh, how surprised are you? Maybe give us some insight on on where this team is and what your expectations have been like. 
it's it's been a, an incredible three years. I mean, we it's, we we had a, I had a vision on how this was going to go. Um, are we surprised that it happened so quickly? Maybe a little bit. I think uh, uh, you know we we as a group and through my staff and myself and we kind of put our head down heads down and work, go to work every day. We try and uh, continually get better and challenge ourselves and and get to work. Um, the the way this team has been built and the organization has been built. Uh, over three years, I think has, has shown that we've looked after the details. We've got an incredible owner in Michael Landlauer who's allowed us to uh, to go and spread our wings and, and uh, be able to be best in class in all departments. Um, you know, so I know I hear I followed managers and, and, and people talk about uh, the process and the template and the build and all that sort of stuff. Um, it was more of a vision for us, and I looked at it, looked at it as an opportunity, especially the way the team came in this year. Um, they came in committed, they came in focused, and it was my obligation to add to this group. And uh, we certainly added some not only high-end players, but high-end characters and leaders as well uh, with the five players that we brought in. In and around, well, early on with Nick Commando and Ryan Moore, and then to add Robert Thomas, uh, Nicholas Madlin, and R- Riley Stillman. They've all been highly impactful players for us. So um, that, in a nutshell, is is really where we're at. I, I saw this team come in focused. Um, I wanted to provide them an opportunity uh, by making some trades, and uh, you know, and and now we have the opportunity right in front of us. Games uh, three and four, ultra exciting off the ice and ultra amazing off the ice because you had, uh, I think it was seventy three hundred uh, in game in game three and, and eighty six hundred fans in game four, and it goes to show you that fans in this town not only like a big event but they love cheering for a winner and the Bulldogs have been a big winner this season. Just your thoughts on seeing that amount of fans in the stands for games three and four? Uh, it's just incredible I, for me. Being born and raised in Hamilton, knowing the passion that we have for hockey uh, in our city, um, it's it's a proud moment for me to be able to to bring this type of quality team for for these fans and for them to be able to come out and uh, express themselves and get behind this group. But certainly, they have a huge impact. Uh, you know, when they come into the rink and uh, our, our players feed off of that, and we feel like we're in a good situation here. We got an opportunity to to get a win here tonight in the Sioux, and then uh, you would come back for a Sunday afternoon game, which we expect to be, uh, we need our fans there. We, we need it because that could obviously be a clinching game, and, and if not, uh, it still puts us in a situation where we feel like we're the fresher team. Uh, we really have to have a good game at home in game six either way, and then even if we do have to come up here for game seven on a back-to-back, we feel like we're the fresher team as well. But certainly I don't think we can underestimate the impact that our fans have and the city has uh, to this group of young men. Sunday would be um, a lot more fun if you guys won tonight because that could be a clinching scenario. Just your thoughts on tonight's game and how you see it playing out. Uh, I, I don't I don't think we'll see anything differently, really. I mean, we uh, we have a fast, heavy team. Um, you know, we, we have depth. We play in, in layers. We continually try and push the pace. Um, you know, and the Sioux has the quick strike offense. I think for us, it's it's a matter of playing. Uh, it's close to sixty minutes. If we can play sixty minutes to our capabilities, I feel very comfortable. Um, and then discipline as well. They have they certainly have a high powered power play on the other side. But I expect us to go down to the last uh, minute, like uh, every other game has. But uh, you know, uh, again, we 
there's a there's an incredible commitment and focus with this group. I, I just love this team. The uh, the coaching staff's got them well prepared. So, um, you know, we're looking forward to another exciting game tonight. Uh, your former employer, the Maple Leafs, uh, have hired Kyle Dubas as their general manager. As the general manager of the Bulldogs, any advice for Kyle? <laughs> I think I think he's in good shape. I don't know if he needs any advice from me. Uh, I got to work closely with Kyle. He was overlooking the player development department with. Uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs and uh, understated leadership. Uh, obviously, very very bright young man. Um, huge passion for the game, and uh, uh, I don't think there's any advice that I could give him. I think I sent him a note of congratulations, but um, I do believe that this has been in the plans for the Leafs uh, from day one when Kyle came in there, and uh, um, you know, bringing Lou Lamarillo in uh, afforded him the opportunity to sit back and watch a little bit. And, gain some more experience but uh, he's more than more than willing than or uh, more than ready to take on this challenge for the Toronto Blues. And Kyle as uh, you know a former uh, employee with the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds has had a huge impact on the present day team, right? 100%. Yeah, I mean he's he's built this culture here. It was uh, it wasn't in in great shape when he took took it over. Um, he developed a culture, a style of play. Sheldon Keith came in and uh, uh, you know, did a great job of coaching that style. And that, you're seeing that reflect. Joe Sorello was around with Sheldon Keeves, and he continued that on. Uh, another Hamilton connection there with Joe. Uh, he continued that, that style of play, um, and uh, they've been a terrific team. I mean, they're number one in the in the country for a reason, and we're, we're up to the challenge. But uh, certainly, and Kyle has a Hamilton connection as well, marrying a girl from uh, from Hamilton. So uh, there's some good, good, uh, good, roots in Hamilton in the hockey community no doubt. Steve appreciate the time uh, best of luck tonight and uh, we'll see you on Sunday and hopefully uh, raising that uh, trophy on Sunday that uh, means you're going to the uh, Memorial Cup in a couple of weeks time that'd be nice. Yeah that, that's the plan. Have a good one Steve Thanks Rick. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML uh, Huge news in Toronto today where the Maple Leafs have appointed Kyle Dubas their new general manager. Guy's 32. And he replaces 75-year-old Lou Lamorello. Uh, Dubas has been the uh, team's assistant GM since 2014. And he's now the 17th general manager in Maple Leafs franchise history. And uh, as I mentioned just moments ago with Steve Steos, president and GM of the Hamilton Bulldogs... Uh, Dubas was with the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds, general manager of that team, and and really molded the team into what it is today. Made a lot of moves, trades, hiring and firing coaches. Uh, he's made the Sioux into a a winner again. Not only a winner, but uh, the the top ranked team in the CHL. So he's done some good things at a junior hockey level. Can he translate that success to what is the biggest fishbowl? in the hockey universe, and that is uh, Toronto. From a media perspective, a fan perspective, players feeling the heat, certainly under the spotlight, can this work? Well, let's bring in Ryan Kennedy, senior writer with the Hockey News, who joins us now. Ryan, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. The, uh, the headline in your story is, Can new GM Kyle Dubas take the Toronto Maple Leafs to the promised land? Uh, yes or no? I think he can. I think he's he's got the core to build off, obviously, with, with guys like Austin Matthews and William Nylander and, and Frederick Anderson and Nett. He's got a nice base to work with. And now 
that that great analytics background that he brought to to Sault Ste. Marie and then to the Toronto Marlies after that, I think he can hone that. So he's got he's got everything at his disposal. We know the Maple Leafs are going to let him spend to the cap, and they're in a good position. So for him, it's a matter of just implementing his strategy from now on. Uh, there are a number of free agents that the Maple Leafs uh, may wish to re-sign or simply uh, let walk away. Uh, James Van Riemsdyk is probably at the top of that list. Um, y- you mentioned a couple of the other names. Austin Matthews, his contract is up in a, in a couple of years' time. Mitch Marner in that same scenario. William Nylander is going to have to be re-upped this summer. What's his first order of business? Where does he start? Well, I, I think you have to look at the, the summer right now and, and just look at which veterans you, you might want to keep. And and I actually don't think it's much of a long list. I mean, with James Van Riemsdyk, fantastic player, 36 goals this year, but he's an unrestricted free agent, and I think that the market is just going to price the Leafs out because you're looking at a player that's going to command at least $7 million a year, if not more, because uh, it is hard to find scoring in the NHL. And because the Leafs need to re-sign Matthews, Nylander, and Marner long-term in the next year or two, they have to keep the cap space open. So I think, you know, for Dubas, he, he has to look for value on the market. Uh, and then, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't make a lot of acquisitions and, and a lot of signings because you have that great Marley's team, which is still in the AHL playoffs right now, and there's some really good players coming up. We saw what Kasperi Kapanen can do. You know, Travis Dermott had a really nice start to his NHL career. Andreas Janssen, Justin Hall. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Dubas just kind of sees what he has and jettisons some of the guys like Leo Komarov and Roman Polak that don't really fit into today's NHL in terms of being, you know, high pace puck possession guys. Was there all at all some surprise? I was a little not not necessarily taken aback, but somewhat surprised that Lou wasn't in charge of constructing the contracts for guys like Matthews, Ed Marner, and now they're 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 heaping that on to Dubas, who doesn't have a lot of experience at the NHL level, certainly can do it, but I thought they would have tapped into Lou's expertise and experience in that regard. Well, I think with Dubas being the assistant GM of the Maple Leafs, he's, he's been on hand for the past couple of years and, and gotten some really good experience under Lou Lamorello, so it's definitely his time to shine, and I think that his background will be very valuable in these negotiations because he can really determine the worth of these players, and, and it's going to be high. We know that. Um, I think Nylander's probably the most interesting one because, you know, he didn't have a great playoff, and, you know, of the three, his his defense sometimes leaves something to be desired. So I, I wonder if Nylander goes long-term right off the bat or if there's a bridge contract of, of say, three years where both sides say, you know, let's see what we've really got here, and then you get the big money. I think with Matthews and Marner, you, you don't even take that chance. You just go long-term. Um, but, yeah, that's on Dubas now. Is, is he's going to have to figure out long-term value and also navigate the salary cap because Toronto obviously does have a, a lot of contracts already. Got about 30 seconds to play with here. Uh, Mark Hunter, who's in charge of uh, player development, uh, uh, building the draft class, does he stick around for a year or two or maybe even longer, or is he out the door right away? It's hard for me to see Hunter staying around too long. I think, you know, a lot of us thought that he would be just as good a candidate for GM if, if Dubas was not the answer. 
So, you know, if you're a hunter right now, I think you have to see if there's a job out there elsewhere in the NHL where you could be the GM, you could be the guy, because, I mean, Mark Hunter has some fantastic qualifications himself, uh, particularly when it comes to scouting. So uh, for some organizations out there, I think they'll take a long look at Mark Hunter and, and see if they can get him out of Toronto because that's the next step for him as well, for sure. No doubt about it. Ryan, appreciate the time. I uh, wish we had more time to talk, but uh, I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.